today on Ag News Daily. It's not a, a crisis, right? A lot of times the days of supply figure gets misinterpreted to be that we're running out of diesel, right? We have refineries around the country that are producing diesel. It is a tight market right now, tighter than normal, and disruptions are more likely uh, you know, to cause issues than they normally would be. This episode is brought to you by BASF, helping farmers do the biggest job on earth. We are November 10th, Thursday morning, 2022. Tanner joined by Delaney. And uh, Delaney, you've got a garage full of stuff. You can't even pull your own cars in right now. That's Yeah, you're right. I can't. That's probably not as exciting as some might think. If you just get a garage full of stuff, that could be exciting. <laughs> it could be, but it's not really in this instance. It's just a garage full of buckets. Yeah, but that I like a good bucket. I think our listeners like a, a good, good five bucket. gallon bucket. Yeah, we'll have to give some away. <laughs> People just don't need a garage full of buckets. No, or to unload uh-huh. five hundred buckets by hand out of the back of a semi truck, like I did yesterday. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. You know who else is not having a lot of fun? Those in the path of Hurricane Nicole. So yesterday it was a tropical storm. It did get upgraded to a hurricane when it made landfall along Florida's eastern coast early Thursday morning. Then the Category 1 hurricane has been downgraded now to a tropical storm. It came through the Bahamas area. About 3 a.m., the radar imagery showed the center of the storm making landfall on North Hutchinson Island, just south of Barrow Beach. Nicole arrived ashore, the island in the Bahamas, with maximum winds of a little bit over 70 miles per hour. So the National Hurricane Center upgraded her to the Category 1. Obviously, we know that Florida has endured the wrath of Hurricane Ian which hit Southwest Florida only a month ago, less than a month ago. Nope, a little over a month ago, September 28th, as a Category 4. So this is a much less storm, but it's still going to bring strong winds and a dangerous storm surge. Then you head up to the Northern Plains, Delaney, and the major winter storm of the, the first one of the early winter is hitting the Great Plains. The blizzard is now being hoisted up into the Dakotas and the larger areas surrounding the Northern Plains and upper Midwest. I told yesterday that we were looking at five to 10 inches, but now there are looking some areas as much as a foot and a half in central North Dakota areas stretching between Montana and Northwestern Minnesota could see six to 12 inches with wind gusting upwards of 60 miles per hour is going to make travel very difficult. So a little bit of a surprise there is the storm both storms last night picked up intensity, Delaney. Yeah, my goodness. That's, I don't, I'm not, I'm still not ready for snow yet, Tanner. It's especially because I walked outside this morning and it's uh, maybe like 60, 65 degrees outside. Especially when you don't have your cars parked in your garage. Yeah, that too. I know. But Tanner, keeping on the weather front here, of course, we're heading into our third La Nina weather season, which could, in, which will impact all of North American production, including Argentina. Argentina is well underway right now with their soybean and corn planting, but weather has been less than cooperative for some regions of their major growing areas. 
for the third year in a row, of course, La Nina conditions are present, which means a drier weather pattern, making it a little more difficult to get things planted as they'd prefer some rainfall prior to and just after planting, of course. The August through December period of the last two years, Tanner, has been among some of the driest in 30 years for Argentina, with 2022 expected to follow this trend according to a lot of the latest weather data models. These dry conditions have, of course, resulted in significant drought across Argentina, putting yields at risk and, like I said, expected to continue suit this year. So we're seeing a little bit of a mixed bag for South American production. As I just reported yesterday, CONAB raised expectations for soybean production, whereas in Argentina, we're likely to see production cuts due to the ongoing drought down there. Yeah, another one for us to monitor. It'll be interesting to get the perspective of some of our Market Monday conversations as that growing year continues down the pipeline. But here back in the U.S., we have averted a rail strike for a couple more weeks. The possible rail strike that would have come after the deadline for renegotiation November 20th has been extended to early part of December, meaning we will not get that rail strike here in November. After voting no to the tentative rail contract agreement, the status quo period of business as usual for the Brotherhood of Maintenance and Way Employees Division would have actually expired on at midnight on November 19th, setting in motion the possibility for a rail strike. However, they announced to their members that they had rejected this agreement and they extended that status quo date to December 4th. So we have a little under a month, Delaney, to get things renegotiated and figured out. But that strike has now been averted. The railroads will continue to reject all proposals that don't have paid sick leave. There are reports indicating that railroads intend to begin ceasing various rail operations within the next few days with the anticipated strike on November 20th, even though they have extended that deadline. So it looks like a little bit of mixed news, but for a portion of the rail division, they will not be striking until December, giving more time for us to negotiate another potential deal. Yeah, I saw that piece of news as well, Tanner. And it sounds like we could use some negotiations with Mexico. Shots have been fired as Mexico's government and Andres Manuel Lopez said on Wednesday that Mexico's government cannot make any more purchases of yellow corn from the United States because it does not want GMO corn. The United States wanted to sell Mexico more yellow corn and Mexico declined in a news conference and said the market is, there is a market for it, but the government cannot make a purchase because we do not want GM. We are a sovereign free country, he added. So this is very controversial, of course, Tanner, because the country imports about 17 million tons of U.S. corn a year and is on track to import even more corn this year. We're continuing to see farm lobbyists insist that the ban will cause billions of dollars. Could see this go to the WTO, of course, as well, but certainly not a pleasant situation as you consider U.S. ag exports, uh, specifically here, corn heading to Mexico and their future. Right. And we've had a historically pretty good and strong relationship with our neighbor to the south. So hopefully... We can get that resolved. But if you are managing your corn crop and crop disease 
you know that it is present week before weeks before you can even see it with the naked eye, which means the wait and see spray approach you've always taken when scouting your fields is waiting too long. Beltima fungicides proven health benefits and revolutionary application flexibility improves your yield potential even in the absence of the disease. Every bushel counts. So make sure you get everything you deserve this season with Beltima fungicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Staying on the corn topic, Delaney, it's Thursday, so we're going to get our weekly ethanol output report. Ethanol production production jumped to its highest level in the last four months, but inventories are continuing to decline. So output jumped for the weekend in November 4th to an average of 1.051 million barrels per day. That's up from 1.04 the week before. Again, the Midwest was the largest producing region. I would presume, Delaney, that's because we have some ethanol plants that are full of freshly harvested corn. The ethanol inventories for the week ending November 4th declined to 22.192 million barrels. That's down from 22.232. This is the lowest levels since October 14th. So we'll hopefully see continued production ramp up as we report on this next week as well. Well, Tanner, this week we are wrapping up COP27 and a big plan has been announced now by the UN Food Agency. They aim to launch a plan within the next year before COP28 that would make the world's food system more sustainable, they say. The plan would also show how the food industry and farming can align with the world's goal of capping global warming at one and a half degrees Celsius. The hope is that this plan would act in a similar way to to the release of a report for the energy sector by the International Energy Agency, which has spurred major investments by companies, Tanner, to the tune of $18 trillion. And so as we look at this new initiative now announced don't have too much detail on what that looks like here within the next year, but it's a pretty aggressive goal to have something done before COP28. Yeah, it is. That's, uh, it's good to have some forward thinking. We'll see if they actually come through with it. Mm-hmm. Well, the last piece of news that I have for today is California ranchers are facing fines for pumping water to their livestock. So a group of Northern California ranchers have now gone head-to-head with the state's water officials for violating orders to cut back their water usage during August. These state officials have imposed a $4,000 fine in Siskiyou County. The ranchers there had pumped water from the Shasta River for eight days in defiance of the emergency state order. For the 80 ranchers who participated, that fine is only about $50 each. The state said the pumping threatened the river's quality and the salmon that lived in it <clears throat> as a rare species created endangerment. This is a meager fine. It's not too much of a detergent, obviously, Delaney, to prevent illegal water diversions in the future. It's the cheapest option the farmers and ranchers said they had to keep their livestock watered. So it sounded like they knew the penalty was coming and faced that haul anyway. Now, ranchers, if they don't want to incur any additional financial burdens may be forced to haul water and hay to their animals. The penalty, $500 per day for eight days of pumping is the maximum that the state could charge. But these ranchers have so far only been hit with the minimum $50. The warning comes that the state's water code will allow for larger fines in the future 
And they are lobbying currently to jump that to a $10,000 per day maximum to potentially stop ranchers and farmers in the future. So that's not good news. It's good that they kept their livestock alive and the fine was not big, but it seems like there may be some policy changes in California to maximize that fine amount in the future. Tanner, I misspoke on the podcast yesterday and wanted to correct something as well. Apparently, we don't have official confirmation yet that the election is over. As I saw in the news yesterday, there are a few runoff elections, specifically one happening in Georgia and a few other states as well, as votes have been very close. And now they're claiming uh, that they need to be recounted and a runoff election is going to occur in Georgia. So we don't have final confirmation yet that both the House and Senate have been largely claimed by Republican parties, but it looks like it will trend that direction, but still not quite done here. It's just crazy the amount of um, pomp and circumstance that goes into this now, it seems. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly one that uh, will drag out far beyond what it needs to be done. But what doesn't have to drag out is your HPPD resistant wheats. They're on the rise and marching toward a field near you, but your cornfield doesn't need to be the battlefield. There's another way to defeat these weeds. Switch tactics with Verdict Herbicide powered by Kixor Herbicide Technology. As the non-HPPD corn pre-herbicide, it helps break resistance before the battle even gets to your field. Help stop HPPD resistant weeds with Verdict Herbicide from BASF. Remember, always read and follow labeled directions. Well, Tanner, as we head into the opening session here, grains traded mostly lower in the overnight. New crop corn down about just under a penny at 663 here to open. It's down two cents in the overnight to open this morning at 1450. And wheat was the only market here to push higher in the overnight, seven and three quarters cents higher in the December Chicago contract at 814 and a quarter. As we hop over to take a look at where livestock will open for today, they were, they finished mostly lower yesterday as the December live cattle contract closed $1.47 lower and will open this morning at $1.5157. January feeders will open at $1.7965 and December lean hogs will open this morning at $85.27 and a half. And Tanner, we're going to be chatting energy for today's podcast, specifically diesel energy. So as you look across the energy sector, of course, crude oil is one we follow closely with analysts, but don't always report on here during the market section. And currently, December crude oil is trading right around $87 a barrel, Tanner. So on that precipice, let's uh, turn it over to our conversation today. Well, folks, as we mentioned, we are chatting energy today, specifically diesel energy with Josh Young, sales manager with Mansfield Energy. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk energy because this has been an ongoing topic of discussion for well over six months now. Yeah, people are pretty interested right now because of uh, you know the global environment and supply chain. So uh, it's a good time to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think maybe that's a good place to start is the global supply chain, a 10,000 foot view. Where do you see all the pieces falling right now, Josh? Yeah, so the global diesel supply chain is, you know, an interconnected web, right? Events that are overseas, while they don't immediately impact like the U.S. 
diesel supply chain, uh, they pull the strings, kind of shakes up the snow globe. So really, we've been in a period of volatility driven by several different factors. The normal, stable uh, diesel supply chain is a little bit different uh, and a little bit disrupted by some of the recent global events. What do you see right now for the headlines that we're able to dive into and share with our listeners? Where do we actually sit on inventory levels now as it relates to diesel? Yeah, so uh, domestic diesel inventory sit about 25 days of supply right now. So it's important to understand what that actually means because it grabs a lot of headlines. But that means if for some reason tomorrow all the refineries shut down, we'd have enough diesel supply to last about 25 days. Uh, but, you know, no one is turning off all the refineries. So to think about days of supply, that's more like the buffer, right? So, uh, you know, typically we sit on that number about 40 to 45 days of supply. Uh, and right now with it down at 25, that just means we're less equipped uh, to deal with, uh, you know, disruption. So a cold winter problems in Europe, uh, refinery outages, all of those things are more uh, you know, impactful than they are when you have 40 or 45 days of supply in the market. Josh, I'm curious, and this is an area that's a little beyond my expertise, but when you look at diesel production worldwide, what are some of the big players in the space? Yeah. So domestically, uh, in the past 10 years, the U.S. has become like one of the bigger players in the space. Previously, it was, you know, mainly overseas diesel, right? Like a lot of, uh, you may have heard of OPEC. That used to be a huge, huge factor in diesel supply worldwide with some advances uh, in the United States ability to produce diesel. We actually produce a lot more diesel today than we did uh, previously. So currently we're producing about 5 million barrels per day of diesel. Uh, and the U.S. economy consumes about 4 million. Uh, but what's kind of new is that we are exporting a lot more diesel than we had previously. Uh, some of that is due to disruption in Europe, right? But the U.S. is now, you know, making up for shortfalls overseas uh, by exporting some of that diesel fuel that we've, that we're producing. So when you talk stock levels and you talked what we can produce in a day, what needs to happen for us to start building up that, that stock level again, building up that war chest? Yeah, so obviously prices are one thing that actually uh, kind of drives days of supply, right? So unfortunately, the best cure for low days of supply is high prices, which in turn drives down demand, right? Uh, we've got three different factors that have really uh, driven our supply situation to be so low. Uh, refinery outages domestically, right? Uh, we've been short about 25 million barrels all year long. It's just become more of a problem lately as we head into the winter. Uh, also, refiners produced a lot less diesel in 2020 and 2021. We're still actually dealing with some of the lingering effects of COVID and some of the transitions that were made there. Uh, but they're catching up at this point, which is nice to see. Uh, and we've also seen seven refineries close permanently since 2019. Uh, so that's going to always you know, get us to be a little bit tighter. Uh, so that's going to be a long-term thing to keep watching as refinery shutdowns. Uh, and the other thing that's going on is uh, the more we have in terms of exports, that's going to uh, drive tightness in the domestic diesel supply chain, right? So when exports are really high, uh, that's going to in turn cause things to be tight here. So uh, in terms of resolution, right, we need refineries running full blast, right, for an extended period of time, we need demand to drop. 
those are some potential solutions. And finally, you know, if we saw changes overseas, uh, a resolution of the Russian and Ukraine war, that would certainly help in terms of limiting uh, the number of barrels that need to be exported to Latin America and Europe. Josh, as we head into the winter months here in the U.S., how much residential use do we see still using diesel fuel as a heating source? Yeah, that's a great question. So today, around 5 million homes uh, use diesel as a heating source. And that accounts for some 3 billion gallons of diesel demand in a typical year, uh, which during the winter, obviously you're not using your heat as much during the summer, right? But during the winter, we see, you know, 17 million gallons per day, uh, just going to, uh, you know, heating homes. So, uh, that's when we see diesel demand kind of spike is in the winter when people are using it to heat their homes. So it goes up about 10% uh, for six months out of the year. The other thing that's related to that is if you have a really cold winter, uh, you're burning more diesel uh, to heat more homes, right? So a mild winter kind of helps that residential demand go down, which overall helps the supply chain. So when you look out into the upcoming weeks and months ahead, what what is your prediction? What do you see? Are we low, just staring down the barrel of higher prices? Yeah, well, I'm not in the business of predictions because, you know, uh, the morning before uh, the Russian and Ukraine war happened, right, a lot of the forecasts for diesel were bearish. So uh, no idea which direction we could head. Uh, what I will say is, you know, I expect supply to be challenging throughout the winter, uh, but it's hard to say how, um, you know, to what degree it is challenging, right? Uh, a lot will depend, again, on uh, whether temperatures stay warm uh, and how things go in the EU this winter. And uh, additionally, uh, how refineries perform this winter, right? A lot of unplanned maintenance, a lot of downtime uh, will just be, you know, send more shocks to the system. So Josh, I know you're not in the, in the area of making predictions, as you mentioned yeah. there, but obviously we work with or have a lot of farmers and ranchers that listen to the podcast and they're always thinking, should we be looking to secure diesel for following seasons? You know, what are you seeing right now as far as the landscape goes is, should we be looking to lock in those diesel needs now? Or I know that's a little bit probably outside of your scope, but I think that's the big question for farmers and ranchers. Yeah. So there's, there's two different thoughts here, right? There's one, the physical supply of diesel in terms of do we need to store more diesel, right? Do we need uh, to take care of that? There's also the whole, are my, are diesel prices bound to go up? Right. Uh, I would offer this advice. So like if you're a large consumer of diesel, uh, I'd be having conversations with my supplier about what is the plan B for when local markets or their, you know, normal pull points experiencing supply issues, right? So uh, just know where your diesel around the country, you're going to have different origin points for your diesel, right? Uh, know where it's sourced from. Uh, make sure your supplier is prepared, aware, and has a plan for a plan B or plan C, uh, you know, things get really tight on the supply chain. 
As far as pricing, uh, we don't know which direction the market will go. I typically advise to think of locking in diesel prices more from a budgetary standpoint, right? Because again, very difficult to tell which way prices will head. It's an extremely volatile commodity market. And if I knew, I would love to tell you, but we have no idea. So that's a personal budgetary decision. And as far as the physical security of supply, I think uh, you should be having conversations with your supplier about their preparation and their backup plans. All right. That's great advice and some really good insight, Josh. Do we miss anything that you'd like to hit on before we close out today? No, I mean, uh, I, I just would, you know, echo again, uh, this isn't something where it's not a, a crisis, right? A lot of times the days of supply figure gets misinterpreted to be that we're running out of diesel, right? We have refineries around the country that are producing diesel. It is a tight market right now, tighter than normal. And disruptions are more likely, uh, you know, to cause issues than they normally would be. And for a lot of folks who listen to uh, this, you know, diesel is crucial to their operation. Uh, so, you know, give it the proper attention it deserves, right? It's been taken for granted for a long time, I would say. Uh, and we're entering into a period where uh, it's something that you want to monitor just a little bit more closely than you normally would. Well, perfect. Josh, we appreciate the time that you took here. Listeners, this is another one of those key conversations. So thank you again for sharing that wisdom with our listeners. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Tanner. Thanks, Delaney. There you go, Delaney. Another timely interview for our listeners. We appreciate all of the guests that come on our show, especially this one. But uh, don't forget, listeners, leave us a review everywhere you listen to your podcast. That certainly helps us a lot. But Delaney, for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.